And if you would, if you have a Bible with you, turn back with me to Matthew chapter 5. We've recently begun a short series in the Beatitudes, those pronouncements of blessing that Jesus gave to us in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And today we come to the fourth Beatitude, the fourth of eight, in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Well, I can't decide whether it's cruel or convenient to be talking about hunger on the Sunday right after Thanksgiving. I suspect that it's both. We've known this week some measure of hunger, and we're also mostly done with being hungry for a little bit. Most of us began Thursday morning a little hungry, or at least excited, to partake of the Thanksgiving meal. I don't know about your family, but for whatever reason in our family, we never seem to have our Thanksgiving meal at a normal meal slot like lunch or supper. It's somewhere in between. We've had it earlier at like two-ish, and then this year's a little bit later, about four-ish. Now, neither of those are when we normally eat, and so... I chuckled a little bit when I overheard the kids this year remarking about how it's hard to time this because you don't want to accidentally be full on snacks right before the meal starts. But you got to eat something. You really can't go to 2 p.m. without eating anything. You surely can't go to 4 p.m. without eating anything. And, and so you got to strategize to maximize your satisfaction on Thanksgiving Day. Of course, these are first world problems, aren't they? When most of us talk about being hungry, when, when we say that we're hungry, when we ask someone if they're hungry, what we mean is, could you eat? Do you feel like having a little something? Maybe when we say, we're hungry, we, we mean by that that we actually have accidentally skipped a meal and we're really eager for the next meal that's not that far away, actually. Maybe as people given to hyperbole as we are, you, you may say from time to time, am I hungry? I'm starving. And we're not even close to really having the first signs almost of any starvation whatsoever. By I'm starving, we mean I can feel it in my stomach. There's this noise down there and this feeling that I'm not used to, and uh, we got to do something about it. Now, I don't want to ignore or minimize the real lack of food in some homes, even in this country, and even in our state, New Mexico ranks last in childhood hunger. So it's not just a third world problem. And honestly, it brings me to the edge of tears to think about children who would show up for lunch at school without any food or who'd be told to go to bed so that their hunger pains could get ignored. I don't want to pretend that's not real, but we need to understand that even that sad scenario isn't exactly what the fourth beatitude is talking about when it talks about hunger and thirst. Here, hungry means almost starving. Here, thirsty means dehydrated, almost dying. 
These images combine for powerful metaphors, for illustrations of an utterly desperate need and an insatiable desire and pursuit for something like the way we need food and pursue food, the way we need water and pursue water. Think of life in ancient times versus our own. Think of Bible times. Think of when families would travel through a desert and it would be seriously dangerous. Not just because of bandits or hazards on the road ahead, but if you did not bring enough food, you could die. If you did not bring enough water, you would die. You can only go three days without water. That's not a big problem for even the poorest of the poor in our country today. If you were driving across the country and you had just enough money to fill up your tank and to keep going, if you got thirsty, no problem. There's a rest area not too far away. You pull over there and they have this public drinking fountain. They're usually working and there is water that you can drink and it is limitless. Could you imagine people in Jesus' time hearing about this? What, what, what is this? What? It's just there? You just hit a button? It comes out? You mean you just, whenever? Maybe you have to go another 10 minutes and then you get another one? Wow. So thirst here isn't about uh, needing to pull over at the next truck stop because our 64-ounce soda is getting low. Let's start with the shock value of what Jesus said. It was shocking even in his own day when they knew something more about hunger and thirst than we do in our day. It was shocking when he said, blessed are the starving and the dehydrated. Blessed means happy, accepted by God, approved of God. Who's approved and who's accepted? Those who are starving for righteousness. They will be filled. Now, these are serious matters. Just as food and drink are matters of life and death, physically speaking, so as they're illustrations of spiritual need, they're talking to us here about eternal life and death, spiritual life and death. Jesus is essentially saying, if you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's not that you just miss out on some blessing, however you define it. You're doomed and doomed eternally. You won't have any righteousness, and you won't have any hope before a righteous God. On the other hand, Jesus is also saying that if we truly hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will be filled to the full. The word is a, a picture of a, a domesticated animal who's allowed to eat or drink all the way till it's filled to the full. It's contented, laying around, doing nothing. What else could it do? It's full. We'll be blessed of God if we truly hunger and thirst for righteousness. So that's a bit of an intro to our verse, a little bit of overview. Let's get into some specifics. There'd be a, any number of ways to chop this up or to categorize what this verse is talking about. Let me suggest four different angles to you this morning. The first is starvation. By that I mean our great lack of and our desperate need for righteousness. 
We are born starved as far as our spiritual state goes. And before we can begin to talk about our pursuit of righteousness or even hunger pains for righteousness, we have to first understand our serious lack of righteousness. There is a kind of physical hunger that is so severe and so sickly that a person won't even eat when food is right in front of them. Either the body is shutting down or something's wrong inside the body telling them not to eat what everyone around them knows is good and necessary. And that's sort of how we came into this world spiritually. We came thinking we don't need God's food, his provision, his righteousness. We think that we're full and we feel like we're full when we're not. Uh, On the other hand, sometimes we are quite aware that we are emotionally dry, spiritually barren, and empty on the inside. But then we look to the wrong things to, to fill it up, to be fulfilled. We, by nature, I think, look to Various things, achievements or possessions or, or safety or money saved aside, relationships, entertainment, achievements, activities, our image, clothes, on and on we could all go. Some of these are more alluring to you, more deceptive in their appeal to you than others. None of these are necessarily wrong things in and of themselves. But it is wrong to take good things that God has given to us and to make them God-like things. We're to enjoy them. We're to use them for his glory. But we're not to think that we can get out of them what we're supposed to get only out of God. We do this because we're born broken and unrighteous. Psalm 143 says to God, no one living is righteous before you. None are righteous, no, not one. Even our good deeds, our so-called good deeds, by nature we do them with wrong motives, which makes them tainted with sin as well. And what's more dangerous is that we're tempted to trust in those things. Isaiah 64 says, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There's no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. And you have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. One definition of sin is being turned in on ourselves. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther said that that's man's basic problem, that he is turned in on himself. That's why we feel starved and empty and unfulfilled. It's because we are. We're starved for righteousness. By nature, we we can't see that, or we won't admit it, or we ignore it. And or we go looking in all the wrong places to fix it. We're looking for love in all the wrong places. And we're so persistent at it. 
despite the fact that we all know from experience that nothing in this world has quite lived up to the hopes we had for it. Ecclesiastes is a book of the Bible that talks about this pursuit for satisfaction and the hopelessness of that pursuit. King Solomon, who wrote it, he had every available means to him to get to the end of a road and down multiple roads of pursuing satisfaction. Almost none of us have that capability. Some of us try to pursue fame, but we don't get very far. Some of us try possessions, but you only make so much. But Solomon, he, he pursued satisfaction down several roads and to the end of those roads, like fame and intelligence and accomplishments and women and sex and leisure and creativity and entertainment. And he concluded that with each one of these, it was all just grasping after the wind. You clench your hand and there's nothing there. It slips out. We all know, even from a very young age, that we want to be satisfied and we can't get no satisfaction, to quote the stones. I remember one of my early Christmases as a kid, I wanted this giant G.I. Joe battleship. It was like six feet long. It was huge. It was, it was one of those real wins if you get it. You know, you're, you're sort of pushing the envelope with mom and dad compared to what they usually get you. And this thing was huge. It took up half the living room or something. And maybe it was 100 bucks, 120 bucks. And I'm hoping for it. I'm hoping for it. I had my eye on it. I wanted it. And I got it. And I put it together. And then what? It wouldn't fit in the bathtub. We didn't have a lake out back. It sat there on the living room floor, pretended that a helicopter landed, and then it flew away. And then I pretended this guy ran down the battleship. And then I hated that thing. It was so stupid. It was so big. And I gave it to a friend not long after because well, what is this thing? It's a giant piece of plastic. We know. We can't get no satisfaction. It's just that our hopes get a little more expensive. I often joke that my favorite car is my next one. I love a next car. It's still in me, right? That's something we're all going to struggle with until, until heaven. But we have to know what's behind it, what's at root there, and whether we're actually replacing God Remember from Jeremiah 2 how God said that his people had committed two evils. They had forsaken him, who's the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So here is God, the fresh, life-giving water. He's the source of satisfaction. They've turned aside from that, and they carry around these these broken buckets with leaks in them. And they think, ah, there's my water. And it leaks and it leaks and they're empty and it's dry and there's no water and there's no satisfaction. It's a double evil. As we said last week, the greatest problem we have 
is not really with our circumstances. It's not in a lack of resources or a lack of opportunity or chances or a lack of education. It's not in your lack of good relationships or a lack of attention that you receive. We said last week, the problem is us. It's not out there. It's not them. It's not the government. It's not circumstances. It's not the system. It's in here we have to come to recognize our spiritual poverty. That was the first of the Beatitudes. Spiritual bankruptcy. The problem is an utter lack of righteousness. We're starving for righteousness, even though we sometimes think that we're full and other times try to plug all the holes with pathetic trinkets. We got to be hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And by the way, righteousness here isn't just obeying God's rules. It is that, but it's so much more. Don't think of hungering and thirsting for righteousness as sneaking away to a monastery where you won't sin. Don't think of righteousness here as a life with a bunch of can'ts and don'ts and won'ts. God has his can'ts and won'ts and don'ts. He also has his you musts. But this is not the boring life. This is life as it was meant to be, as designed by a joyful, good God. The righteous life is the good and happy and blessed life. I quoted Billy Joel last week. I guess I'm in a Billy Joel state of mind. Here's another quote from Billy Joel. They say there's a heaven for those who will wait. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. Well, I think Billy Joel is probably lying to himself. If you just compare the rest of Billy Joel's songs, you'll find all kinds of things that contradict that. There are a lot of sad songs. There are a lot of tears. Sinners are not always more fun, and certainly their destiny is not one of fun. We've all gone astray from God's ways, and untold miseries follow in the wake. Starvation. Secondly, there's hunger. By hunger, I mean the awareness of our need and the pursuit of righteousness. If you know that you're spiritually starved, then hopefully you also start to feel hunger pains. And that's good. That's where our, our beatitude picks up. Do you feel hunger pains for righteousness? Those hunger pains are painful, and rightly so. That's healthy. It's good, and it's right, and it hopefully leads to food and health and hope and righteousness and blessing. But make sure you're hungry for the right thing if we can circle back to where we've already been. Are you hungry for righteousness? Not blessed are the Hungry for blessedness. Is that what you're hungry for? Hungry for God's blessing. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that we should be hungry for an experience 
or religious accomplishments or religious accolades. Our friend D.A. Carson has written a book on this portion of Matthew, and he writes, Many today are prepared to seek other things, spiritual maturity, real happiness, the Spirit's power, effective witnessing skills. Other people chase from preacher to preacher and conference to conference, seeking some vague blessing from on high. They hunger for spiritual experience. They thirst for a consciousness of God. But how many hunger and thirst for righteousness? Now, do you see how this so obviously flows from the first three Beatitudes, which we looked at last week? The first, in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who begin to see their spiritual bankruptcy. Blessed are those who mourn about that spiritual bankruptcy. They talk to God about it. They bring it to him. And they come humbly or meek. Blessed are those who are meek. That is, those who give up on trusting in themselves and commending themselves to God. Blessed are those who give up on trying to decide for themselves what they need and come humbly to God. Those are the meek. And then you can see from there how it turns to the positive, a pursuit of righteousness. There's the recognition of a lack of righteousness in the first three. And then there's a turn towards hope and towards the filling that only God can give as they seek it out. That means, by the way, that if you don't think that you need righteousness from God, well, don't bother with the fourth beatitude. Go back and keep thinking about reading over and praying over the first three. You're not there yet. There's some progression. You need to understand your spiritual poverty and starvation before you can start to truly hunger for righteousness. Just like those who have true hunger should seek out real food, not fake food. Does it make sense to, to try to fill your hunger pains by biting into a plastic apple? It does you no good to, to swallow lots of cardboard covered in Nutella to try to fix your hunger. Well, so those who know that they lack righteousness must hunger and thirst for righteousness, not some cheap alternative. The Puritan Thomas Watson, back in the 17th century, he said, hunger is satisfied with nothing but food. Bring a hungry man flowers or music Tell him pleasant stories. Nothing will content him but food. So a man that hungers and thirsts after righteousness says, Give me Christ or I die. Though I have wealth, honor, and esteem in the world, all is nothing without Christ. We must hunger and thirst after the right thing, righteousness. But we also have to hunger after it. Hunger, remember? That doesn't mean be a little curious about it. It doesn't mean explore it, be interested in, be willing to accept it or try it out for a time. Again, think of those who would be hungry and thirsty in Bible times and that that hunger was desperate, utterly desperate. 
like a man floating on a boat alone, stranded in the middle of an ocean, surrounded by water that he cannot drink, and on a platform with no food whatsoever. He's hoping to get to possibly even some deserted island where there's no one else, where there aren't crops per se, but he'll make do, he'll kill some frog, he'll eat an eel, he'll do what he has to do. He's desperate. We're to feel that desperation as we hunger for righteousness. I wonder, are you sick and tired of your unrighteousness yet? Are you sick and tired of the filthy rags kind of righteousness? That isn't real righteousness at all. Well, good. Good. It's no fun to be sick and tired of our trumped up fake righteousness. It's no fun to feel our lack of righteousness, but it is the place to start. Tell God, like David did in Psalm 63, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Tell God you give up on all other sources of ultimate satisfaction and turn to him, the source of living water. Did you know that hunger and thirst are basic requirements for coming to God for righteousness and satisfaction? It's required. You don't get in another way. You don't show some other badge. Listen to the requirements given in Isaiah 55 for coming to God. There's an invitation, come. But listen to requirements. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which isn't bread and and you labor for that which doesn't satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear. Come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Did you hear those requirements? You must come hungry and thirsty. And you must come without cash. Or you don't come at all. But those who come like that, what's the rest of our verse say? They will be satisfied, filled up. There, there's great hope, even a sure promise. So thirdly, there's satisfaction. Starvation, hunger, But satisfaction, God promises to fully satisfy those who hunger for righteousness. Now, before we move on, let's pause here to to think about who Matthew is showing this to be delivered to. Who is Jesus speaking to? Who does he give this hope to and implied invitation to? It's no small point. Because if Jesus is only addressing unbelievers, those not yet in the kingdom of heaven, then it might seem like he's giving them a path to earn their entrance into the kingdom of heaven. 
especially when you get to the later Beatitudes, like showing mercy, like peacemaking, like being persecuted. If that's how you enter the kingdom of heaven, then it's something you do. You be nice to people. You be forgiving. You smile when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. I think we know enough about the gospel to know that that can't quite be what Jesus is saying here. But if Jesus is only addressing believers, disciples, and those already in the kingdom of heaven, then some other important matters are missed. Like back in chapter 4, verse 23, we were told there that Jesus is preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the good news, the invitation, the call to come. That's what the gospel is. It's a summons in a summons in mercy because of what God has done. Later on in chapter 7, Jesus will say, enter in by the narrow gate. He's not just talking to believers. And even more clear, look at chapter 5, verse 1, if your Bible's still opened. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then he opened his mouth and taught them. So there are two groups of people here. The crowd... The disciples, the crowd is interested in Jesus. They're following Jesus. They're a bit excited about Jesus. They're willing to listen to Jesus. But Matthew makes clear that there are two groups here. They're not yet the disciples. And so that explains why at times in this long sermon of Matthew 5 to 7, some lines seem to address kingdom citizens. So this is how you pray. Jesus will teach them in chapter 6. And other lines seem to be an invitation. As we said last week, while all the Beatitudes are always descriptive of those who are in the kingdom of heaven, you never graduate from any of the Beatitudes, Christian. We also said that the first four of the Beatitudes are apropos for those who are entering the kingdom of heaven. Part of entering in is getting low, coming humble, weeping over your sin, and looking to God for righteousness. There's a logical progression to the first four. Poor, mourn, meek, hungry for righteousness. And there's also this outworking of righteousness that happens in the second half. When you get righteousness, then you're merciful then you're a peacemaker. Then your righteousness is visible to the world. And they don't always like that. So it's important we see that the hunger for righteousness will not ever earn filling from God, satisfaction from God. The filling and the satisfaction is a gift from God. Now, sometimes Matthew uses this word righteousness to mean what Christians do, how we live, how we're to live in front of this world. We're to be righteous as our Father in heaven is righteous. We're even to have righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, chapter 5, verse 20. The Pharisees were famously religious, but all externally so. 
It was all external. It was all the doings. It was all what was visible for others. And that's why Jesus says your righteousness has to exceed their righteousness. Because he's talking about a righteousness that works from the heart outward. I encourage you to read Matthew 5 through 7 today and see maybe, I don't know, 20 or so ways in which Jesus talks about true religion working from the inside out, not the outside hoping it will clean the in. It doesn't work that way. But once that righteousness is in, it it produces something. It works itself out. How does it get in? Well, we don't put it in. That's my point. We don't put it in. Matthew never says that. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness does not produce righteousness. Just like hungering for food doesn't produce food, it actually proves the absence of food. You can go seeking food, but in this picture, God must do the filling or you're not filled. So it's both and, crowds and disciples, those in and those entering in. The righteousness here, the filling, is a gift from God and also something that grows out into everyday life in the life of those lives of those who have that gift of righteousness. Let's think about those two, gift and growth. Righteousness is a gift according to the Bible. Paul can say in Romans 1, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Not revealed in our doing, not revealed in our righteousness, but as we believe and receive his righteousness, thereby he is righteous and we are forgiven. So the righteous shall live by faith. We don't depend on our righteousness, we depend on simply receiving in faith. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that God made Jesus to be sin, he who knew no sin, to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He treats us as though we're righteous, not because we are, but because his son was. This is the great exchange that we were talking about last week, that though you are utterly spiritually bankrupt, the utterly spiritually rich Jesus Christ of Nazareth will, if you believe, and if you ask him to, he will take your spiritual bankruptcy with all your sins and debts, and he will have paid that debt upon the cross, and he will give you his account of infinite glorious righteousness, so that when the Father looks upon those who've received this righteousness, they don't They're not seen as what they really are and how they've really lived. He sees us, just as he would, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, who did everything he was supposed to, who fulfilled the law, not with mere grit and determination and sometimes with a bad spirit, but he obeyed the law with joy He was everything we were made to be, and God can see us just like that through faith. Righteousness is a gift, and God will give us that gift to the full if you hunger and thirst for it.
Are you hungry for the righteousness of Christ? Are you sick of your pathetic attempts at righteousness, not, not least your attempts at satisfaction? He'll fill it all. He'll give you righteousness and satisfaction. But if you believe that, and if you have that, then righteousness is something you grow in. This, too, is all over the Bible. I think of Philippians 3, where Paul can say, I'm not counting on a righteousness that is my own. I consider that to be dung. But then in verse 10 of Philippians 3, he exclaims that I may know him. That's what I want in the power of his resurrection. That I might share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. He said, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Press on. Christians, press on. Christians, stay hungry. Remember Mickey and Rocky Three. Rocky was going to Fight, fight Clubber Lang, I think it was, Mr. T. And Mickey said, he'll knock you to tomorrow, Rock. I've been working on that for a while. <laughs> he says, you ain't been hungry since, what was it, Apollo Creed or something, the, the first guy. Did I say Apollo Creed already? Feels like I did. Clubber Lang was the third guy. Apollo Creed was the first guy. Mickey said, you ain't been hungry in a long time. I will knock you to pieces. Christian, I, I wonder, are, are you still hungry for righteousness? Not hungry for blessing. Not hungry for acknowledgement or accolade. Not hungry for status. Or even for experience. This is humbling, isn't it? You see, you don't graduate from this fourth beatitude Though you have been given all of Christ's righteousness through faith, it is your responsibility to live it out, to work it out, to seek more of it. Again, Dr. Carson, the more I read these verses, the more I am both drawn to them and shamed by them. Their brilliant light draws me like a moth to a spotlight. But the light is so bright that it sears and burns. No room is left for forms of piety, which are nothing more than veneer or sham. Christian, we're to grow in our hunger for righteousness. Which means we're to grow in Finding sin repulsive. Oh, it's not completely so yet. No, it won't be in this life. It doesn't mean it's done and that we always hate it implacably and completely so that we don't ever let it in. We know it's a struggle, but are you still finding sin repulsive? And increasingly so. Are you finding holiness to be increasingly beautiful. Psalm 95 says, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. If you think holiness is, is just obedience and drudgery 
at that, you don't get it. Hunger for righteousness means that we can't be picky and choosy about what bits of righteousness we're going to hunger after. But where we're hungry and still hungry and still pursuing, there is a filling and satisfaction as a result. Those who hunger for righteousness will have been filled or filled because Christ gives them all of his righteousness and they will keep being filled. If you seek righteousness and you're really hungry for it, do you know God will give it to you? Do you pray for it? Do you pray like Robert Murray McShane, the, the young Scottish preacher, Lord, make me as holy as a justified sinner in this world can be? If so, he'll make you holy and happy, blessed, accepted, approved, satisfied. Isaiah 61 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. Psalm 36, he gives us to drink of a river of his delights. Isn't this what Jesus was talking about in John 4 when he said to the woman at the well, you keep coming back to this well, and with this water, you have to keep coming back. It doesn't satisfy. But I am living water, and I will give you water which will quench your thirst forever and forever. This is what he said in John 6. I'm the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not. Thirst. This is now. This is yours today. And there's more still to come. Revelation 7 gives us a little snapshot of heaven. And it says, They shall neither hunger nor thirst anymore. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will, in the end, be filled to the full. Mysteriously, we have been filled as Christians. We are being filled. And one day we shall finally, forever, and to the full, be filled with his righteousness, with his glory, with his joy, with his presence. We're not there yet. And so I have a fourth point for us to consider, appetite. We need a steady appetite for spiritual food whereby we grow and we increase our capacity for more and more. We're not yet in heaven. We've been filled. We're being filled. Let's make sure we're not content to stay where we are. Let's make sure we're not simply looking for experiences, highs. Let's make sure, like the way we eat or supposed to eat, that we're developing a healthy appetite for the things of God and that we keep growing in our hunger and our capacity and in our desire and in our health and in our growth. It's a cycle, isn't it? 
It's a cycle that doesn't quite work so well for adults in their use of food in the physical realm. Uh, it is true, the more you eat, the more you can eat. It is true, the more you eat, the more you want to eat. That's not good, though. That's where the analogy breaks down. But I have a 12-year-old son, and it works there. He eats more, he grows more, he eats more, he grows more, he likes food more, he expands his diet, he figures out what works, what doesn't work, that gives him a headache, this doesn't. You see, eating, growing, increased capacity, better health. This is how the Christian life is to be lived out. Or you can look at babies like Peter did in 1 Peter 2 when he said, like newborn babies long for the pure spiritual milk of the word of God that you might grow by it into salvation. God's word is how we grow. That's a, an illustration all over the Bible. This is the one to whom God will look. Those who have a humble heart and tremble at his word. His word is like food, it's like honey, it's like milk, it's like meat. you got to eat it. Christian, if you let it sit there, your Bible, I mean, have you gotten used to a spiritual loss of appetite? You're supposed to have an appetite for the things of God and for the word of God. And yet we shouldn't be surprised about those seasons where we've somehow lost our appetite. It's funny that we're actually surprised by this sometimes. Have you done this? I sure have. Where I've gotten away from God's word. And I come back to it. And it's hard to swallow. It's cumbersome. My spiritual jaw is tired. I'm not sure I remember how to swallow this and get it down. Yeah, you're not used to it, friend. Just like someone who goes long enough without food that the, the rumblings of the stomach have stopped. The saliva is just stopped. They're not used to it. Get back to it. Taste and see the Lord is good. Don't just hunger for his word. Hunger for the God of his word. Hunger for God. Keep going to those places of dining that he has provided for you. He's given you time. He's given you a Bible. Use those. He's given you the opportunity to go to him in prayer. And you don't have to be clever about it. And you don't have to be long-winded. Just do it. Keep doing it. Come on Sunday morning. And again and again and again and again until Jesus comes back. These are meals. Uh, I'm certain some don't taste very good. I'm certain most are not memorable. I suspect this is one of those sermons that will not be memorable for you in five years. But what did you eat on this day five years ago? I don't know, but it worked. You're still here, right? Eh. It provided, it nourished. And even at that moment, even if it was subpar, it satisfied. 
keep placing yourself in those places of dining that God has provided. Keep eating. And you shall be satisfied. Psalm 63, David said he was thirsty for the Lord. And then he said, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Blessed is the man who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He will be satisfied. Oh, Father, we need your help. We need more of spiritual hunger and thirst. Help us with what we're not. Make us into what we should be. Everyone in this room right now can be and should be praying something very specific for their own souls about what you have laid in their heart for their need before you. We pray for your help. As the deer pants for streams, Lord, our, we want our souls to pant for you, to thirst for you, for the living God. As you do so, Lord, as you give us yourself, as you satisfy our thirst, would you change us and keep changing us? May we never trust in anything else, not our lives, not our love, not our pursuit, not our discipline. May we always trust in Christ and Christ alone, but may that trust in him transform our lives more and more. And please, we pray, may others come in to enjoy this glorious satisfaction that comes in Jesus alone and to join us in giving over lives to you in worship, not just because we must, but because we can. And it is the place of glorious, eternal blessing and joy. We thank you for these things and ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.